So Dr. Wester and I are going to give a brief introduction to what we're talking about today and why it matters. Uh, I don't think it's a surprise to any of you, but uh, what we are really dealing with uh, within Tennessee and within the region and nationally is an intersection of HIV, hepatitis C, and opioid abuse. And what we really want to do this first introduction is kind of set the table about where we're at. I recognize that some of our colleagues here are crossing state lines, and then we are coming across the state from a variety of different areas. This is going to look at Tennessee data as a whole, but I think it does reflect some of the challenges and the evolution of the epidemic, both in urban, rural settings, as well as other challenges. So the title of what uh, Dr. Western and I are going to briefly talk about is HIV, hepatitis C, and opioid abuse, a Tennessee tale. And I'm going to start with a little bit of data about a familiar folks. I think everybody here has been involved in HIV or aware of HIV management treatment to some degree. This is some of the demographics of HIV in Tennessee. We have a population of a little over 6 million. We have about 15,000 people diagnosed and living with HIV. And we have about 710 people newly diagnosed as of 2016. Uh, there is an uh, increased risk of HIV diagnosis among men, uh, particularly as far as race and ethnicity among blacks. And then as far as transmission category, men who have sex with men are uh, much more commonly to be infected with HIV and also to be among the newly diagnosed. I think it's interesting to highlight that injection drug use is actually a relatively small proportion of HIV population. I'm going to send a couple of warning shots across the bow as we go uh, through a little bit more of the epi later. Um, and I think what's also incredibly concerning and disheartening to a certain degree is that our age of newly diagnosed patients remains very young, uh, between the ages of 15 and 34 uh, for the vast majority of our newly diagnosed infections, which does match up to national data. When you look at HIV disease by status and year of diagnosis, uh, there is some slight improvements over the past decade. Um, certainly, we want this to be curtailed even more so, but it's been there have been improvements, but yet it's also a relatively stable number and stable in the context that it's higher than what we would like it to be. Men who have sex with men remain the highest risk subgroup. And then injection drug use, as I already mentioned, is a very small number as far as what we've identified for new HIV infections. But again, uh, warnings to come. And when we talk about distribution of newly diagnosed HIV across the state, you know, those of you who are more familiar with uh, Tennessee geography, we recognize that, well, in the southwest corner, in some of the central states, as well as the southeast corner, you can pick out where the larger metropolitan areas would be, including Nashville, Memphis, Chattanooga, Knoxville. But there are some outlying relatively rural counties here that do have a much higher rate of HIV, particularly in rural settings. After the Scott County Southern Indiana HIV epidemic a couple years ago, the CDC, SAMHSA, and several other organizations came together to try to identify counties nationally that met the same risk profile from the standpoint of health literacy, from the standpoint of poverty, from the standpoint of drug use and other aspects. And several different states, virtually all of them within Appalachia, were particularly at risk. And as you can see, a very large proportion of Tennessee counties are considered to be similar at-risk counties to what happened in Scott County, Indiana, where they are primed and unfortunately have assimilated risk factors that very much match what happened in Scott County and are places where a very similar epidemic could happen and very well may be happening currently. Luckily to date, we have not identified that, but these are certainly concerns and risks. And this does definitely play into where some of our overlap is when we talk about an emerging threat, which is no longer emerging, but fully developed, 
Uh, and that is for hepatitis C. And the fact that you're spending time with us today clearly identifies that you and your institution have identified that hepatitis C is important in your patient population. This is relatively old data, but it's still important data to reflect that hepatitis C overtook not only HIV, but all uh, nationally notifiable infectious disease conditions as a cause of death as of 2012. Tennessee, uh, even when you look at conservative estimates, like the Haynes cohort, is one of the most prevalent states as far as hepatitis C, as far as across the population. And unfortunately, is also one of the states where it, that translates into significant morbidity and mortality. And again, both of these maps are available at hepview.org, uh, facilitated by Emory University and the Rollins School of Public Health. But again, this is actually based on relatively conservative estimates by historical cohorts that don't as well address some of the emerging epidemic related to injection drug use. And the state, and this is data from uh, Dr. Wester and her team, is that this really reflects that there is a different epidemic that's emerging as opposed to the historic. Uh, Tennessee has consistently ranked among the top five uh, over recent years as far as case rate of acute hepatitis C amongst the population as compared to national averages. And you can see the geographic distribution. And uh, many of you will recognize that East Tennessee and the extension of Appalachia is a site where injection drug use remains a significant issue. That being said, I can certainly say that my clinical experience in Nashville and across the state, that this is emerging and moving geographically. And some of the states that remain very sparse uh, are states that, or counties that may not have as uh, close observational reporting. Dr. Wester had a comment. And I think this reflects, unfortunately, the public experience and the public knowledge that this is a major issue in the eastern part of the state because of the uh, clarity as far as the injection drug use impact. And thus, that's impacted screening diagnosis uh, services that have allowed us to amass this data. And hopefully, we'll get even better as far as collecting the data elsewhere. But you can see where the maps differ as far as newly diagnosed HIV cases and acute hep C cases. Yet, while the maps are different, the risk factors remain the same. And that is a particularly concerning factor when we talk about this final, which I thought the three horsemen of the apocalypse, which really include not only HIV, not only hepatitis C, but now the syndemic of opioid use. Uh, in Tennessee, again, it's in all the wrong shades of color. Um, and some of our visitors from Arkansas will also reflect as well as that opioid prescribing rates historically have been relatively high in the Deep South, uh, particularly among Tennessee and Arkansas is also included in that group. This is old data, but it's relevant data from MMWR reports where rural, non-urban cases of hepatitis C far outpace urban cases of acute hepatitis C that's identified by the upper left graph. And the bottom right is that opioid admissions or prescription opioid admissions uh, certainly have dramatically increased uh, amongst admissions to substance abuse treatment centers. Again, returning to HIV risk vulnerability index, our HIV risk map doesn't match, but you can see that these are a lot of the very uh, concerning counties when you look at uh, the hepatitis C epidemic. So we know that these risk factors are the same. So how we interface with the hepatitis C epidemic will impact how we interface with the HIV epidemic, which will impact how we interact with opioid use. 
So the subsequent question is, what have we done and what can we do? And so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wester to complete this part, and then we will turn it over to our speakers to kind of guide us through the remainder of the day. So um, in 2015, uh, we had $95,000 in federal funding, no state funds for all viral hepatitis prevention efforts that funded almost one FTE. That person had a foot in hospital-acquired infections, HIV, STD, and also immunizations um, because of different opportunities and common transmission factors. <clears throat> we were able to pull that in to our HIV, STD section. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <coughs> and <coughs> with the support of our um, state epi and our commissioner, we were able to use some uh, federal data because we had very limited uh, state level data um, showing, like what Cody showed, the acute um, increasing rates, particularly among young individuals with injection drug use in Appalachia of acute C, acute B, the vulnerability index, Put together a legislative ask, we're able to get $1.4 million for outbreak response plan or outbreak response planning, early detection and rapid response, and basically able to use that as our seed money to grow our viral hepatitis program. We've approached it along all aspects of the HCV continuum of cure. Um, that includes surveillance. If we don't know what's out there, we're not going to know who to help, where to if we're even doing anything, and where to focus limited resources. We realize we have to have prevention efforts at both sides of the continuum because of the risk of reinfection, and then also testing, navigation to care, and to assist um, with our partners helping build treatment capacity. So there are a lot of things here. I'm just going to give you a few quick highlights um, um, with respect to enhanced HCV surveillance. Chronic HCV is a lot easier to digest than acute hep C from a surveillance standpoint. As I mentioned, the case definition for acute hep C requires signs and symptoms. So you have to have your liver function test. You also have to be able to interview the client and find them. <coughs> Whereas with chronic C, we just need to be able to, <coughs> I'm sorry, we just need to be able to digest the data, the lab data. So chronic probable C is an antibody that's positive. Confirmed chronic C is an antibody with an RNA positive. Um, if somebody subsequently clears their RNA, they're still considered, considered a, a confirmed case. We stepped up our efforts at chronic C surveillance in the middle of 2015. So July 2015 is where we started consuming that lab data. And you can see over those 30 months, we had about 30,000 newly reported chronic C cases. And I can tell you, because we looked at a baby boomer cohort with a large within a large insured population, and only 8% of baby boomers who had been recommended since 2013 um, to be tested had actually been tested. So this represents the tip of the iceberg. Again, these are reported acute C cases. If you break it down, and this is just those 30 months, so the approximately 50,000, um, on a national level, we think of uh, chronic C as being predominantly among baby boomers. 
Uh, more than 70% of the prevalent cases are thought to be among individuals in the 45 to 65 birth cohort, with a smaller but growing proportion among younger individuals. Again, these are just the 50,000 who were reported to us newly in that 30-month period, but you can see in Tennessee we have much more of a bimodal curve, and if you look in the left half in the reproductive age individuals, half of those is reflected by the red are among reproductive age women, so we're knocking on the door of a trimodal um, uh, curve. So that brings me to perinatal. We do not have perinatal C as reportable. Chronic hep C only became officially reportable in 2017. We've been able to step by step by step convince that this is data that we can actually digest centrally without overwhelming the regions because the regions are doing everything from foodborne to hep A to you know, mumps and measles, I mean, it's everything. So we have to be able to digest this centrally. So without perinatal C, how do we estimate how many women or um, babes are exposed? So we took our NBS data, which is our viral hepatitis surveillance database, matched it with the birth records, and then you can also just look at birth certificate data, and I'm not gonna show that, but there's actually a mismatch. So if you include those who are on the birth certificates but not in our database, perhaps because of incomplete reporting, these numbers go up even higher. But this is just the women that we've seen in our surveillance database matched with birth certificates. Um, we have total live births, the second column from the right, about 80,000 a year. And then we broke down in the first three columns whether or not the individual in our database had an antibody only or whether there was an RNA as well because we wanted to try to um, remove the individuals who are RNA negative so that we wouldn't be overcalling the exposure rate. And so if they had an RNA that was positive, um, this is the second column, that's either during pregnancy or in the absence of a pregnancy RNA, their last RNA prior to pregnancy was RNA positive, they fall into that column. And then if they were only RNA negative during pregnancy or their last antecedent RNA was negative, they fall into that. So we add the two pink columns, that's the total exposed column. And you can see, and of course, I think this just reflects our ability to detect and the fact that it's going up, but this is per 1,000 births, so 1.5%, and this is not with routine testing, so 1.5% of our babes are being exposed every year, and again, I believe that's just the tip of the iceberg. Where, again, these are reported, uh, or rates of perinatal exposure, and you've gotta be tested in order to do it, but I think what's just crazy is, is if you look up in the Upper East part, again, they're testing more aggressively. Some ob are actually testing routinely out there, which is wonderful. They see it in their population. They recognize they need to. But, you know, this is per 1,000 uh, births. We've got some counties that are as high as 15.5% of the babies born are being exposed to hepatitis C. Testing, and again, I'm sorry I'm gonna fly through it, but what about testing? Well, um, we wanted to make sure safety net testing was available, so our state lab built the capacity to do antibody with reflex to RNA. Um, it was piloted in three eastern metropolitan areas, and then it was um, started April 1st of 2017. In that period of time, a one-year period of time, this is the scale-up. We anticipate we're gonna have uh, 35 to 40,000 tests um, this year but a 12.5% antibody positivity rate. Um, of those, 70% were RNA positive. Um, in the columns, you can see the total number. We have uh, a screen when a test is being ordered where you have to answer yes or no for the person who's ordering the test uh, for the client, whether or not they have a history of injection drug use ever, 
intranasal drug use ever, incarceration, non-professional tattooing, whether they're a baby boomer or no risk factor. You can see in the middle column, for those who are antibody positive, um, basically, uh, well, let's go with the first column. So that's the percentage of individuals who fall into that category. Even in the bottom row, half of the clients didn't re um, report any risk factor, and there was still a 2.5% antibody positivity rate. Um, and then you can see what the antibody positivity rate was in the other. And it also shows the health department is a very important place to be testing, at least in Tennessee. Um, we've looked at estimates of how many people we feel are um, truly infected. NHANES data says that we've got about 80,000 viremic patients in Tennessee. We think it's much higher. We think our antibody positivity rates are about 210,000 in a state of 6.5 million. So that's a little over 3%. And on an expert consensus panel, we think our viremic, we have about 150,000. Um, I honestly wonder if that's conservative. Um, uh, we need to ramp up surveillance and testing uh, in order to know. We also have a partnership with some community-based partners. These are mostly HIV testing agencies. They're also getting out into the community. They do a smaller number of tests, but obviously targeted. And you can see their antibody positivity rates are, are um, a third of the people that they test. Having a safety net testing capacity within the health departments is sensational, though, because it allows community-based organizations to do this kind of testing and then um, go to uh, refer them to the health departments for confirmatory. We also have case navigators. They're doing a fantastic job in hep C treatment. Really, a lot of the folks in our health departments are in this middle, uh, the third row, which is the uninsured, that they didn't have access, their clients didn't have access to diagnostics, pretreatment evaluation, but ironically, if they could actually get through those barriers, they could access, and they could find a provider who was comfortable, they could get medications through the PAP. So we're trying to help with the first two and uh, the PAPs, and obviously Cody's, the AETC, is doing a fantastic job helping scale up. Through some Ryan White funding, we've been able to get some elastography machines out there to help with uh, diagnostics as well. Uh, treatment partners uh, are, are building treatment capacity, including IAS USA. It's just been sensational, hugely appreciative. And then this just shows the first year of treatment in health department safety net settings. This is the year they were scaling up. Uh, 109 clients were treated. There's another 150 in the works right now for which we don't have SVR but very, very grateful for the health departments. This is the beginning on the steep end of the curve. Um, there was some problems, and you can see in the bottom right corner with patient selection in the first six months, but it's doing a lot better now. So I want to thank you very much. And sorry to get you on off to a delayed start. So.
offenders. Right. So thank you for screening them. And then maybe what we can do is um, talk at the next break because with the testing efforts, because we also, I mean, obviously there's value in testing and people knowing their status and prevention and um, opportunities to, uh, 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 you know, I mean, education and transition prevention and also liver health for the individual him or herself. But we also realized that we absolutely had to put navigators in place. So we have navigators in all the public health regions. And even if the health department in that region hasn't scaled up yet, they have provider directories for HIV care and treatment, hep C care and treatment, and also mental health and substance use disorder treatment. And it's still about hard, you know. I mean, there's, uh, but I'd love to put you in touch with our navigator. I'd like to mention that the very first hep C patient I treated in the health department was actually a paranoid schizophrenic. Awesome. 